1: I probably don't need to introduce Dan, but I'm going to. So, Dan is the editor in chief of Accounting Today. He's been in that role since 2011. He joined Accounting Today as the managing editor in 1998. So, he's been the voice of our profession for quite a long time now. He hosts the Accounting Today podcast, uh, which I was very fortunate and honored to be a guest on recently. Dan, welcome to the Unique CPA.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited. This is uh, is great going back and forth between the podcasts. We could just be each other's guests for years and years. We never need to talk to anybody else.
1: All right. Done deal. I'm signing the contract. Here we go. (laughs) But like I said, I honestly, I really was honored for me to be on that. Uh, You and I recorded last week. It'll be coming out, I think, shortly before this comes out. I would assume we're about the same time, probably. But like I said, I really do feel that you've been the voice of our profession for a long time. I've been in this profession a long time, and uh, I, I predate you. But I I remember uh, (laughs) uh, at least uh, counting today going way back with me in the profession.
0: Well, I would say, maybe accounting today might have been the voice of the profession. If I'm the voice of the profession, the profession has bigger problems than I think it does. But uh, no, it is it's, it's uh, it is a fascinating profession. There's a lot going on. It is an exciting area to cover. I should say, I mean, this is one thing I, I never talk enough about, but I'm not an accountant. I have no background in accounting. I'm a background in journalism um, and came into it to, to cover the space. And it, it is genuinely fascinating. And it's been uh, the last 25 years, you remind me. I uh, have been exciting and fun. And it's, it's a, a neat profession with a lot of uh, exciting aspects. Aspects to it and covering it has been great.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of change, accelerated change probably uh, recently as well, but it's probably always been change. But there's a few topics we'll probably talk about today regarding that, what's going on in the profession. But before, I really want to talk about this for a few minutes, or or as long as you want. You do have a conference coming up in May. I think is the May eighth. Is that the day?
0: Yep, May eighth to tenth in San Diego.
1: And so give us the theme of this and and, and how this came about to, to, to do this.
0: Absolutely, it's called the Firm Growth Forum, and and one of the things we we're thinking about is that um, you know accounting firms are so busy helping their clients grow and helping their clients uh, succeed in their businesses that sort of you know it's a shoemaker's children kind of a thing. They often don't have time to focus on their own growth. And with as you mentioned, there's so much change going on, and I think there's more change going on now than at any point in the 25 years I've been paying attention to accounting, and and it's difficult to to keep up with it. It's it's uh, difficult to keep up with all the different uh, changes internally, externally, with clients, with staff. Uh, with the structure of the firm, with all the different uh, technologies that are coming out. There's so many options. Listen, forget about the challenges. There's just a ton of options to pay attention to. And so one of the focuses of this uh, event is to bring accountants together, uh, particularly leaders of accounting firms together to figure out how to make their firms better. So we're focusing on the structure of the firm, the services firms are offering, how they're handling staff, right? The war for talent is an enormous issue. How they're how they're figuring out succession planning, what they're going to do about PE, P- private equity coming into space. That's a big topic, right? These days, service, new service offerings around ESG, CAS, cannabis, cybersecurity, all the different new uh, service offerings that firms are paying attention to. That's our focus is that sort of aspect of the sort of working... You know, working on your business as opposed to working in your business, and we're excited to bring we're bringing a lot of Europe joining us. We're bringing a lot of experts from all around uh, the space to talk about what it means to run, to run a modern firm and what it takes to be successful at that. We're psyched about it. We think it's uh, going to be very exciting. We haven't done a conference in a decade or so. We've been in the space for a bit. It's a, There are a lot of shows out there. We think this one's different because of that specifically, that focus. There won't be a lot of technical education. There won't be a lot of tax law or standards or that sort of thing. It's really more about working on your business than working in your business.
1: I mean, which I think is hugely important. That topic comes up a lot, at least with me personally, because I think a lot of times, and you've mentioned it, CPAs are so, I say CPAs generically, EAs, CPAs, tax preparers, bookkeepers, accountants are so focused on helping the client is what you said. Helping the client, being the resource for the client, coming up with the solutions for the client, helping them grow, that they forget that they have a business that needs all the same things. and they Often I've heard, heard people like, Oh, yeah, I do own a business, don't I?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm a small business owner, too. Hey, wait a minute.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important, especially when, like, you and I talked last week about mental health and, and just, you know, not putting your nose to the grindstone and working 80 hours a week. I think working on your business, I think, is important. So I'm really looking forward to this. And and thank you for uh, choosing me to be one of the presenters. I'm really looking forward to that.
0: We're excited about it. All
1: right. All right. So then you just said a bunch of things that we can expand on. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm going to save some of it for the show. But... (laughs) For, for the event, but, no, uh, no, we're going to record for tw- twenty four <laughs> hours straight right now. We're starting a marathon. So. Right. Now this is going to run through May <laughs> and then you can join us live. So, so one of the things that, that I was really intrigued by, and it's going to be addressed someone at the conference. It sounds like too. I was intrigued. You put this this question out. I think it was last August, and and I'm probably going to get it wrong. You can correct me. But what I think it was: Do we still need accounting firms? Yeah, and. I was like when I saw that, I was like, wow, that is awesome! I, you know, everybody's going to answer this. There's great information that be out there, and you wrote this up in an article, you know, in August, and then the responses in October. But let's talk about that do we need accounting firms or or is it just more of we just need to change the way accounting firms are structured? What was the whole point of the question? Right. Well, that's, and it's worth, yeah, it's
0: worth before people uh, for, you know, uh, mobs with pitchforks show up outside my <laughs> door, it's worth explaining, you know, the framing of the question is, do we need, is it the structure of accounting firms? Do we need, well, obviously everybody knows we need accountants. Everybody knows we need accounting services, both on a compliance and an advisory folks. Either way, we need those. Everybody needs those. There's never been more demand for accounting services. So that's not really the question. The question is, Do those services need to be delivered in the traditional accounting firm structure, right, where lots and lots of raw talent comes out of schools, goes into public accounting firms, uh, gets winnowed down to a sort of pyramid of partners, the traditional, some people call it the pyramid shape. Um, Do we need that? that? Is that functioning properly? Is it doing the things we need? And is it sustainable? So that was really the question: Was you know, are there other ways to deliver these services? Are there other ways that accountants could be might be happier to operate? Uh, you know, would they be less stressed or less uh, or feel freer, be able to offer the services the way they want to offer them in a way that's be- maybe better for their clients? Uh, are there ways that are more capital efficient uh, or that meet the the better meet the demands for capital that a modern the modern accounting firm is running up against? Uh, obviously, there's all kinds of talent issues that goes into this. We don't have the the mass number of young accountants coming into the profession that we used to have, which supported that model of, right. You had, like I said, that pyramid, that broad base of thousands and thousands and thousands of fresh out of college students coming into the profession, um, I don't want to say getting chewed up, but, but, <laughs> but, you know, being put to a ton of grunt work. Um, and then getting sort of winnowed down to a small group of partners. They hive off. Some of them would go off into industry. Some of them would go off to entirely other professions. Some of them would go off to nonprofits, et cetera, or start their own small firms, but really ended up with this small number of partners. So that was the question is, is there, are there other ways to organize the delivery of accounting services in ways that don't require the firm? Because there are many problems with the firm. And, and, you know, the responses were a mix of, personal threats no there were no personal (laughs) threats but but i mean there were some people who were very upset about it who were like of course we do of course we do some of it was conflating conflating like i said i wasn't saying we don't need accountants right saying do we need do we need to be organized in firms was really the question but but then there was a lot of thoughtful uh responses about on all sorts some disagreed with me but were thoughtful about it um and some people were uh were were whole hog on it and wanted to try things that I wasn't even prepared to imagine. always so it was neat. It was, it was fun. It's fun to throw a question like that because accountants think very deeply about their profession and think about what they're doing and get very passionate about it. So like I said, death threats aside, um, <laughs> it was a great experiment. And I think the um, there was no consensus. That's, uh, you know, you wouldn't expect there to be. But um, there was certainly a recognition that there are problems with the model. Um, you know, some people said, oh, that's the worst possible model except for all the others. Uh, and some people were like, no, it's perfect. And some people said, yeah, you know, we're going to have to do something about the the talent issues and the the paying out retirements to, you know, a, a large overhang of partners when there aren't enough partners coming up. And there's so much, so many potos- possible answers to and different possible structures, uh, you know, sort of my take, and I don't know, I'm sure you have thoughts on this and I'd like to hear them, but my sort of take is we're probably going to have all these models. You know, yep. some firms will keep the old firm model, some firms will try whole new, Collective hive mind things that we've never imagined, and and uh, others will try entirely. You know, others will be competitors coming in from outside the space. But, I, anyways, I, I, what are your? Uh, you were uh, thinking about this. We've been talking about it, but
1: yeah. So, so I'm the same. I'm the same way as you. So, what I've seen is the you know traditionally my I don't know what the right term is audience or my you know interaction with firms for up until the last three years has been top 400 CPA firms. And that structure has been in place for most of those for a long time. There's some, I don't know, call them modern firms, firms that haven't been around 50 years, just being in that, that may be doing things a little different in that top 400. But traditionally, they've been around a long time. They're under the structure. And I don't see it changing uh, that much. Although with private equity, they're restructuring. And there's obviously going to be change. And we could probably talk about that. Um, But what I've seen is the modern, what I'll call, I used to call it, you know, millennial firm, whatever, startup firm, 30, 40 year olds uh, starting up their firm. They've been around 10 years or something. I've seen a, a completely different mindset on structure there. And I honestly like it. I, I, I There's not one set stone, this is what we're going to do, but there is the from, you know, Josh Lance, who started a firm in Chicago, uh, who was remote from day one, doesn't have the partnership structure, but he allows employees that mer- meet certain requirements, you know, so many years there, to buy into the firm as well. So right. they can be a partner. It's not just you're named a partner. You choose if you want to come in or not as an ownership structure. You have firms where the owners are outdoing Modern firms again, allowed doing a lot of things like you and I do. Out promoting the profession, out talking on podcasts, out at webinars, at conferences talking, and they've built their firm that are, which I think is extremely important. And I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but we're going to keep going with this for a second. I <laughs> so uh, I like the back and forth. This is awesome. Yeah. So good. so they've done these things like where they've they've created a sustainable firm in a short amount of time where this firm can run without them. And, and so I think that really should be the goal, that the, the firm can run without the person that started it. And they're still the figurehead, but they're out doing all these other things, which I find so cool and interesting. There's firms like Acuity that I didn't even know existed. They're 150, you know, whatever, 12, $15 million firm that I didn't even know existed until a year or two ago. And they built their firm based on pretty much what they've seen in tech startups. Yeah. you know, They take that mind, same mindset and they've they've put it into the firm. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for change. I think change is probably needed. And especially when you said it, when we talk about the employee attraction and retention, uh, apparently there's something out there that people don't like. And if we could do things better, hopefully that, that helps with that.
0: Yep, no question. I mean, you know, and there's so many options, right? I mean, you talked about uh, alternative uh, ways to become a partner. You know, you'd have, we have, uh, there has always been one or two firms that were ESOPs. For right. the last 25 years, but I, I keep hearing a lot more talk about ESOPs and it graves. You know, it's it's not quite a partnership. It's not really the same thing as a partnership, but it does give everybody a stake, or almost everybody who wants to have a stake in a firm. That's a new model, right? And that's a, uh, in many ways, a, a you know, a possibly a longer lived model than the current accounting firm model. Are there ways we could change current firm model to allow? to have a long lifespan. Sure, private equity is helping with that. Right there, it's pulling forward some of the partner reward to a more uh, you know, to a to a younger level. Let's put it that way. So yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. And I think the, the most interesting thing about, it, as I said, is that there's going to be a lot of different kinds. There's going to be you know uh, the, with the rise of gig work, and and the, that kind of that the, that economy. I think we're going to see a lot more firms. Uh, well, f- firms that aren't firms. We're going to see a lot more firms that are sort of collectives that come together to do individual projects. And okay, I got my I got my tax guy and I got my you know my accounting guy and I mm-hmm. got or maybe the tax and accounting guy work together all the time. But then they bring in their their payroll guy for somebody if they've got a CAs practice or they bring in their not like an exchange. What's the one I'm thinking of? Uh, the cost segregation study guy yeah. or whatever the case may be. You know, we already have models for that, right? Of partnering between firms for yep. specific engagements. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I think we're going to see firms get smaller. Uh, but with with longer reach because they work with a lot of other people.
1: Yeah, I agree with that, and I think becoming that niche. So smaller firm, but you have a niche. And again, I mentioned Josh Lance. Josh Lance's niche is the uh, craft brewing industry. He is known as that, and and so he has this niche. But then there's things within that niche. You know, like you said, cossack or uh, R and D or you know, just payroll in general, that then that they, I don't know if they do it this way, I think they do, but then they team up with someone else to bring in the experts. So you could still be that point of contact for your clients as the expert, but man, you just can't know everything in this profession. It's impossible. And so I think that's a model. I think we will see more. And that's kind of what Trimerid's done for the last 16 years. We've been an outsourced partner for tax preparers on specialty tax. And uh, I think I can see that accelerating. So let's talk about that though. In in general, a little bit. There's a couple things that came off of that in my mind. You know, we talked about employee retention. Is there a model that we think is going to be better or remote work? Is that somehow going to change the business model as well? Any thoughts on how we get people into the profession?
0: <laughs> if I had thoughts, I would be. Uh, I would be the voice. Then <laughs> they would crown me king if I could solve that problem. But <laughs> yes yeah, I think you know, there's a lot of things that the the profession can do and has been doing to give it to give full credit. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the profession hasn't been standing still where I think we may be making it seem like oh, they're mired in the <laughs> mess. they're not. they have been make, making lots of changes. Yes. We follow, I, I give you an example, and I love this because we've been doing our uh, best firms to work for list for I think it's now its sixteenth year. This will be its sixteenth year, I think. um and and when we first started it, you know the difference between the number one firm and the number hundred firm, was enormous. It was actually one to 60, but that doesn't matter. The point is between the top firm and the bottom firm was enormous. The bottom firm was you know it was fine. It was acceptable. We didn't put any firm lists, firms on list that weren't good, but right. it was nowhere near the number one firm. You know, the gap between them is enormous. That gap has has narrowed entirely. The difference between the number one firm and the number 100 firm, it's actually, we do it by size, so it's a little less than that. But I mean, basically, the top firm and the bottom firms in that list are the, the worst of the best, is tiny. It's, you know, I think of it as Olympic timing, right? You know, where it's like a tenth of a second is what separates the number wow. one from the number two. They're all really performing well on all the things that it takes to retain talent. They're giving them flexibility and mentorship and development and, uh, compensation and compensation and compensation and benefits and bonuses and, and, and uh, opportunities to be a leader at a younger age, all the different things that firms need to do. So we're seeing that, you know, they're doing the best they can to make themselves attractive. It's the, and I don't think, so I don't think the burden really has to be on the firms per se. It's the profession as a whole needs to figure out, you know, what are the causes? Why aren't people coming in? And there'll be a lot of argument about the 150 hour rule. If that's the thing I, I I think that's a, a part of it, but there are a lot of other parts to it too, which is one, it is very difficult to compete with technology uh, and finance, both of which took off exponentially during the 90s. And that's when this shift really took place. The decline of accounting students went from, you know, sort of 2% of all accounting, of all students were taking an accounting degree down to 1%. It got cut in half. Wow. And, and it's that took place in the 90s. And it's not, you know, 150 hour rules, you say, maybe keeping people away. But I think it's that suddenly you had technology saying, hey, we like people who think well in systems. We like people who are good with numbers. We like people who are comfortable with taking a framework and applying it to other things. A lot of the the analytical skills that go into making a great CPA or a great accountant or a great EA or a great anybody in this profession our talents that are equally exciting to technology, which pays a lot more. And it's similarly for finance, people don't talk to this about as much, but the finance industry exploded over the course of the 90s, started in the 80s, but exploded really over the course of the 90s, became huge and started paying enormous sums of money. And again, was a little sexier and sounding, you know, working for, a, I work for a commercial bank or an investment bank, sounds a little sexier than I work for a CPA firm. Um, and they're paying you a, a ton more money. So I think, you know, th- those are all the, the broad structural issues of the workforce and of the competition for accounting firms that, that maybe the profession needs to deal with. Because as I say, I think firms in general... Are, are doing their part, or at least they're working very hard. One area I will say though, you mentioned uh, remote work. I think remote work is one area where the profession probably could do a little, a little bit more work on. We do a, we do some surveys, uh, the company that owns us owns six or seven other, uh, B2B publications, and we'll occasionally do surveys across all of them on broad topics. Remote work was one of them and then how you're going to handle sort of the return to work Post, Um, no one can see me. I'm making air quotes around return <laughs> to work. Um, uh you know we did a survey as to how they were going to handle that you know what in at, at the end of the pandemic how do you expect you expect your people to come back to work and accounting was was a, a far outlier in terms of expecting people to come back to work uh much sooner and much more completely than than any other industry i mean like 10 to 12 percentage points out from the others, so you know, all the banking industry and the insurance industry and the financial planning industry and the the bond market and the bond industry and, and, and two or three others that we cover, we're all saying, well, yeah, we, we want people to come back to the office, you know, but we're not going to expect them. Accountants were like, nope, get back in the office now. You know, and obviously, there are firm, plenty of firms that are not being that way, that are embracing remote work. But overall, the, our respondents were, were way out of line with the sort of general general workforce and the general market. And, and at the same time, complaining about not being able to find staff. It's like, well, maybe if you listen to them when they say, I don't want to come back to the office, or I want to only want to come back to the office two, three days a week or something like that. That's, that's one area. In general, as I said, I think firms are doing well in terms of addressing the desires and needs of, of, of potential staff except in that one area.
1: Whatever. Yeah, and I think that's a big deal because I've seen that when I, what again, going with my definition, legacy firm and modern firm, I see a big disconnect there on the remote work. This is just me anecdotally. I don't have numbers or anything, but that's what I've seen. And, and I think that modern firm is not having the same problem getting employees as that legacy firm, especially a legacy firm that is going to say, yes, you need to be back in the office. So that's just something... We need to address a couple of things then based on that again you get me so excited some <laughs> things that you said here um, that these I don't know if they use the term sexier looking industries but the you know the banking and the finance and I well, don't know insurance is the sexy looking industry but we'll, we'll keep them off um, but <laughs> but um, technology they're paying more we have students that have to go an extra year and we're not paying them as much as somebody that's maybe not even getting a college degree. And if they are, they're going only four years. Right. It sounds like we have a, a pricing problem as much as anything. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, And this was, you know, we, uh, every time
0: we, every time we talk, I have, I have a different study to cite because we do a lot of <laughs> research. Reports, but, you know, we do our top 100 firm list. And last year, every, effectively every firm on the top 100 list said, at some point we reviewed our compensation this year and gave raises. And many of them said we reviewed our compensation twice and gave raises because this was the middle of the, the great resignation and everyone was concerned. And it's like if you have to look across your your uh, workforce and and review your compensation twice in a year, that's got to tell you something's wrong with your compensation to start with. Right. And it's not like accountants are poor. I mean, accountants are not – they get pretty good salaries coming out of college. But it's to compared with where they can go – It's just not enough, and there's this sense of well, well, when you become a partner, it'll kick in then. You'll get paid off then. And it's like, first off, we know that you don't expect everybody to become a partner, right? We know that you're thinking it's a pyramid, and a bunch of people are going to fall away, and it's just going to be the top performers who become partners. So there's a little bit of disingenuousness there. Uh, But then there's also just the fact that I don't want to wait, you know, thirty years for. I don't want to get it when I retire. I I can go to tech and get paid an enormous sum of money and buy a house on the beach now. Right? You know, why wouldn't I do that? Um, And then you, you know, we talk about. We talk about the extra, you know, the the extra year of college and the cost of that. I can go to an extra year of college and maybe get an MBA, and that credential. And, I, and don't get me wrong, I have an enormous respect for the CPA credential. And I, I you know, but on the other hand, if I can get a credential that is, let's face it, pretty well respected, almost as well respected. MBAs, when you when you go into corporate, right, if they see an MBA and a CPA, they go, wow, those are both great credentials. They yes. go, well, obviously, a CPA is better. And the difference there is, I don't have to take a big fat test. To get get the MBA, right? I can go to the extra year of school. Okay, I paid the money, but I get the credential right away. And I think that's something to to bear in mind. Again, I'm talking about sort of the broad profession has to think about how it's being compared to to other credentials and and how hard. Now, you would never want to see it dumbed down or or made easier, but at the same time, you need to make sure that, that that value is paying off. Uh, for, for people who want to take it or want to become a CPA you gotta do, there's some, a lot of marketing work to be done and, uh, and some, some compensation work to be done on the, the salary level start.
1: Oh, for sure. All right. So I think one important thing based on what we were just saying there is we'd mentioned the 150 hours a couple of times and that this is a, an issue that seems to be coming up more, I think, partly because we are having this, you know, 2% of college graduates are now 1%. We are having people not staying around. And so there's been discussions and I've seen other states or states start talking about this. Do we want to reduce this down to a four year degree now. Uh, I think Minnesota is the first one to at least talk about this. Is there a proposal out there? Uh, what are they? And I think you wrote something on this recently. Yeah, this
0: just, just we just just covered this, and it's a, it's fascinating. You know, it's obviously people are naturally going to look to the 150 hour rule. It's the big change, right? That we can point to. We still have an exam that's been the same. 150 hour rule is the big thing that's changed in the last 25 years internally to accounting, right? And so it's natural to look there and say that's the culprit. We are seeing, you know. Uh, um, Minnesota introduced a law, and it's important to, to understand the law they've they've introduced because it's it's not just, let's get rid of the 150-hour rule. What it is, is it's created two alternative pathways to becoming a CPA, or three, if you want to put it that way. Three is the traditional one. If you can go and get 150 hours and then pass the CPA exam and get the work experience, you can become a CPA. But they've added two alternatives that don't require 150 hours of college education. You get four years, and then I think it's two years of work experience. Um, so instead of an extra year of college and then some work experience, you get double the work experience. So the notion is that live experience out in the market, out working with accounting firms, it, they're treating that as the equivalent of the fifth year of school. And then there's a second one that involves, I want to say it's one year of work experience and then something like 120 CPE credit uh-huh. hours yep. in a in a short period of time, relatively short period of time. So essentially you're taking that CPE credit, um, a, again, in, as a replacement or as a uh, a, a placeholder proxy for the 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 thirty extra hours of education. So it's not really getting rid of 150 hour. Uh, it's it's finding alternative ways to get experience in education and and uh, so on. And there's I th- I thought that was a really interesting approach to it. To say, listen, we're not getting rid of it. You can still do it that way if you want. Because uh, getting work experience or taking on a lot of CPE or those are these these are not you know it's not easy. So I thought it was it was an interesting approach to it. There are some some reasonable. Questions with it, right? Does it? Does um, create problems with mobility. Uh, it's one uh, those could go away if NASBA and the CPA decided they should go away. But right. um, uh, that's a little, a little. But I mean, they could, <laughs> they could go. Um, but they, there's a you know good question of saying, do we want to make you know, do we want to lower the bar for entry? Do you want to say, well, you've only you used to have to have five years ago, Now you only have to have four. There's some legitimate marketing and reputational concerns there. Yes. You know, it, it's just like saying, you know, you, you wouldn't want doctors or lawyers to say, well, we've, we've cut out a year of schooling for them. They're fine. They don't need that. Um, you know, you don't want that. <laughs> you don't want that that uh, perception. I mean, I thought it was interesting just that, that people are experimenting. And I think that's a level of seriousness of approach to the problem that needs to be taken, right? You need to say, we, we really may need to shake things up seriously. Uh, up to and including, really looking at the core requirements for this profession to make sure that it can live on. Uh, so that's that's the one thing about that that I would say is, you know, I'm not sure that the 150 hours is the culprit, but I think that being willing to look at everything and say, what really do we need to do or what can we do that will seriously tackle this problem? Because it's so huge
1: yep and I, th- I think I like what you said that, that people are looking at, and it's kind of going back to what we said at the very beginning. There are a lot of changes. There are a lot of good changes that have happened. People are looking at changes, so we're being innovative. at least somebody's coming up with ideas. And honestly, if you go back to your your uh, medical profession analogy a little bit. I mean, part of the medical profession is, and I'm not a doctor, but I think they're out actually kind of working before they actually finish their degree. They're out hands on doing stuff, which is kind of equating to this. Now you're, I learned more in my first year in public accounting than I did in my four years or whatever of, of. well my mine was probably about six years but uh, um, <laughs>
0: you could have gotten your 150 hour credit that's 180
1: credits yeah standpoint. well so so I actually probably do have 150 because I got an undergrad degree in computer science decided a couple of years later I should have been a CPA went back to grad school probably have the 150 so so gotcha. but I actually don't have a degree I don't have an accounting degree I just had enough hours to take the exam and and so we did that but yeah I, mean. I, I, I learned on the job.
0: You hear that a lot, right? You hear that that that, that most of what people learn in college <laughs> isn't that useful, and that in a lot of states, those extra thirty hours don't have to have anything to do with accounting. And sort of like, Exactly. Well, if they had something to do with accounting, then they might be. I might consider them more valuable and being less. Uh, but you know, let's let's hope the clients don't understand that that fifth year <laughs> that's so valuable that makes the reputation of the client, <laughs> that they don't realize that it's it's not it has nothing to do with accounting. It's it's you know, no, basket, it was basket
1: weaving in French. Right. It was the universities, the colleges, they didn't buy in on this hundred fifty, so they didn't put the curriculum in place for the hundred and fifty is what I understand. And because of that, it's just you gotta get your hundred and fifty hours and there is probably some additional emphasis on accounting and law and everything else, but but yeah, it's out there. All right. So I let's there there was one other thing, or at least one other thing. Like I said, I could keep doing this for We got 23 more hours to go. So um, (laughs) um, on the marathon uh, (laughs) podcast interview here, you you mentioned it about, you know, nobody wants to wait till 30 years in before they get their money from becoming a partner and everything. Well, private equity, part of probably what they recognize is, yeah, we can come in and we can give this money out faster. And now we can also capitalize these firms and they can get more involved in technology and find out other ways to be efficient. Do you have an opinion or or pro or con or just what your observation of what private equity is doing in the profession?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it, it, it's solving some problems, right? Some obvious problems, which are lack of capital for a bunch of different things, one of which um, for M&A, for technology investments, for service line investments, and here particularly, and for people investments. And that's the, right, that's the thing you should say. You're able to pull some of those incentives forward because being a partner is an incentive if you plan to stay at a, at a firm for your career. Right. And a lot of people these days, that is not as attractive an idea for them, particularly when they look at what partners do. Most of what partners do is talk about how much work they do. I'm kidding. I'm, part, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm oh, partners are not time, uncommon. But, it, but it's true. <laughs> There's a lot yes. of com- complaining that makes it less attractive. Also, this this always never fails to terrify me as the uh, – uh, Mark Rosenberg talks about – he talks to young accountants on a regular basis and he re- routinely say to them, you know, how much do your partners make? And they routinely – underestimated hundreds of thousands yes. of dollars, yes. and so they don't realize how attractive it is. I mean, forget the fact that it's forty years away; they have no idea how attractive the money is. Right. Um, so you got a couple of problems there: um, one that it's too far away, and two that they have no idea how, how big it is. And so you know, private equity solves some of that by being able to you know to to give uh, sh- stakes or bonuses or payoffs to younger hot talent that you want to keep. Um, so that in that sense, uh, it solves it solves a bunch of problems. Um, on another sense, I think it, it brings a whole lot of questions and unknowns. Basically, what do these PE people want? Who knows <laughs> what they want? I have no idea. You know, I, they want to sell in five years or five to seven years or whatever their time horizon is. It varies from firm to firm, obviously, but um, or depending on how patient their capital is. But they, you know, what do they want? What do they see in accounting? Are they seeing you know tremendous opportunity to you know, turbocharge firms and boost their growth enormously and then reap the rewards of that? Or are they looking at like a steady, because accounting firms are pretty reliable earners, right, even during the midst of the pandemic. They still grew 3 to 4%, and last year they grew, uh, we just got these numbers in, and it were like 18%. It was a huge growth. So accounting firms are pretty reliable earners, putting up a pretty reliable stream of cash. Is that what they see in it? Who knows? I don't know. I'm sure, again, it probably varies from firm to firm, but you need to know that before you look to PE. And then you ask, what's their time horizon and who are they going to sell to? Because once they own it, they could sell it to anybody they could sell it to you know me they could sell it to the mob think <laughs> about that that's the next john grisham novel is a mob uh, owned a uh-oh, accounting uh-oh. Firm. Um, uh, you know it's who knows what they're doing uh, and i'm not suggesting there's anything shady or nefarious but no. it opens up no. this whole i mean i would like it to be exciting if it were, <laughs> but, um, but it opens up this whole can of worms of you know where are you going to go and how far away from being an accounting firm do you end up and so I, so, I think you know, I, I can't recommend it or not recommend it. Um, I, I we were I was on a, a call with a bunch of people talking about this recently, and one of the things you had to sort of keep reminding yourself was that PE firms vary as widely as accounting firms do. There are great accounting firms. There are terrible accounting firms. There's run of the mill accounting firms and the same thing for PE, right? There's going to be very good private equity firms that are genuinely interested in, in creating value and adding value and building a better business than the one they saw before. And then there's going to be asset strippers. I'm not sure how you'd asset strip an accounting firm, but, right. I, but I, I actually, I take that back. I could totally see how you would do that. You would break it up and you would sell off the staff, you know, as, as much as you're legally allowed to. But, um, There's going to be differences in all those, and so the question is, you know, it's it's the individual PE firm that you're dealing with will determine whether it makes sense and what their plans are, and what your and what your partner goals are.
1: Yeah, and one of, the, one of the things I think that I see, and I, you and I were talking before we started recording, I, we've, we've both learned a lot of our uh, private equity knowledge from Alan Colton. Yep. And so um, based on what, what Alan's told us, but the, the couple things. One, at least I want to assume that this is part of it. Just allow them a bigger uh, investment in technology because technology is huge. Technology can make you more efficient. I'm assuming PE wants to take advantage of those efficiencies. But then also being able to increase your service offerings too, you know, rather than just tax and accounting and auditing. Now we've got HR departments, we have IT departments, we have, you know, investment uh, groups that, uh, you know, we're offering investment services. Um, you know, there's probably a bunch of services that they never are thought about before that they could probably bring in. Yep. Does that now dilute or do, should we not be called? And a county firm then anymore? Or is this now we are a advisory? I guess a lot of firms are rebranding yep. as advisory firms. So. What do you think that that pre is going to turn into from that standpoint? Well, that's right. I mean, this is right. The fascinating
0: part is the whole fact that that you're seeing all these firms that go to PE that have to split themselves up into two different organizations. I are talking about it's the LLC and the LLP, but really, it's right. It's the advisory firm and it's the old test firm, whatever the 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 rump. Now, there's they still operate effectively. It's not like they leave the office. You know, we going to build a wall down the middle of the office kind of thing. Um, but I think that more and more that will become a very different. Uh, right now, it's all, it's all the same term, and they can't operate. But it's all in the back end, where they, you know, one one firm leases employees from the others and stuff yep. like that, and you don't really see it. And that may well be true, but I wouldn't be surprised if, as we go forward, you, that becomes more true that you do see it, that you see differences. And I go back to this for I keep going back to Anderson Consulting, um, and you know, Anderson Consulting long before the collapse, of Anderson leaving Anderson because there was the big gap between a Test and, and the, the high turbocharged consulting firm. And you don't need to go back that far. I always do because that's the, you know, because that was one of the big stories Accenture, when I first started right? covering was covering. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, le- it left and became Accenture. And it left some and people get confused. So they think, oh, it left after uh, Sarbanes Oxley or something like that. No, it was five, six years before. Um, but you don't even go, need to go that far back. You can go to three months ago when Ernst Young said it's doing the same thing. It's splitting up its a test function from Pretty much everything else, because pretty much everything else is making a lot more money or is a lot higher path of growth, um, and those partners don't want to be tied down to an attest. I'm putting words in their mouth, and they may yeah. disagree with. They would c- certainly say that is not what's happening at all. It's <laughs> a it's a carefully thought through strategy to deal with the modern environment, um, and it is. I'm not. I'm. I'm wildly over exaggerating, but uh, I, I would suspect that will play out much more. Uh, over the course of and again it would depend on the PE firm. If the PE firm is there to turbocharge growth, as you say, take advantage of a bunch of efficiencies in with technology and then and then turbocharge the advisory services because there is a tremendous potential for growth there. If they're looking to do that, you will eventually find that there's going to be a growing gap between the the LLP and the LLC, between the attest function, which is not stuck, but is is remains doing this critical work of the CPA profession. And then the other part, which is can grow as much as it can, right? It has no conflicts of interest. It has no right uh, no, but has has far fewer conflicts of interest. Now, the balancing part of this, and this is where things get complicated, and this is one of the reasons why it's fascinating to cover accounting. This is one of the balancing things there. Is I think that the ESG opportunity is going to turn the turbocharged part of accounting to a test. I think we're going to find that over the next, you know, three to five to ten years, the opportunity for offering the test services on ESG is going to make a test the hotbed of activity. It's going to be, there's just going to be enormous opportunity and there's not going to be enough people, well, there's already not enough people to do it, but there's going to, <laughs> there's, there's not going to be enough firms offering that kind of stuff and more and more firms are going to be able to do it. It's no longer going to be, uh, I, I think it will be less the, the the purview of just the big four and the large firms, um, you know, but because right, right now, how many firms really do audits, right? Vast majority of audits are done by the largest firms. Right. I think we're going to find that there's an enormous explosion of opportunity in audit because of ESG. Um, so, so that may balance that out, but even but if it doesn't, then as I said, you're going to stuck with this the profession getting further and further apart. You know the two big elements of it. One is the sort of core thing of this. Of, and you mentioned we're not just talking about CPAs but in this case. We are. I'm talking specifically just about CPAs because the only thing they have a license to do, right, is 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 the audit. Right. So if they sort of get stuck there, and they're going to see all these other things get get hived off, and say, well, we could grow faster. if We weren't tied to you. Right. Uh, I think it's going to be, you know, it'll see, fascinating to see how it plays out. It will play out differently at every firm. But uh, yeah, that's the one thing I say
1: when, again, going back to that modern firm, the modern firm doesn't seem to be concentrated on the audits very much. It's all the other services, and that might be the case. Um, You know what, real quick, because um, I'm not sure everybody's familiar with ESG, and I know you did a a, a whole uh, series of articles on ESG. You want to give us a quick definition of what that is and why this is important to the, the accounting industry, or profession? Sure, sorry, I should have explained it as I was (laughs) saying
0: it. Um, So it's environmental, social, and governance. Reporting um, and it's people talking about uh, reporting on climate change things. So companies reporting on their carbon footprint or on the the amount of pollution they put out or on uh, where they source fresh water for their products if they use water in their products or where they source the materials and metals that they use in their products. All that sort of stuff. Uh, that's part of it. There will eventually be some social reporting around uh, diversity, for instance, or your impact on the community around you or your engagement with the community around you. And then the governance is sort of how you're structured to to operate responsibly in a modern environment. Those are all three at different levels of reporting. But for instance, the, the big issue right now with the E part of ESG is the SEC recently put out a bunch of proposals on reporting around climate change. And that's uh, still in the proposal stage, people are still looking and commenting on it. They're gonna, uh, undoubtedly they are going to require some reporting around climate uh, impacts uh, fairly soon. There already are, and to be clear, there already are some responsibilities for that, uh, but there's gonna be a lot more and there are gonna be a lot more Standardized, there's also, there was something like, I, I'm estimating this, somewhere between seven and 800,000 different frameworks for <laughs> reporting all kinds of environmental stuff. And those have all consolidated down onto the point where there's very few of them, and to, which means that there's some consistency around the world, right? There's now the International Sustainability Standards Board, based in, I think, Montreal and somewhere in Europe, uh, run by the IRFS Foundation. So there's going to start to be standards put out that are reliable, that people can use, that have some uh, comparability across the world. And governments more and more are going to be requiring this kind of reporting. Stakeholders are going to be requiring this reporting. Uh, Markets are going to require the reporting. We've already seen that show investors do it when they want to do sort of socially responsible or environmentally responsible investing. Uh, But the point is that more and more companies are going to be required to report on this kind of information. And it's going to look just like, you have to go back to the 30s. To really get a sense of what this will look like, because you have to go back to the '30s to say, well, what did it look like when all these companies suddenly had to start reporting their financials to the SEC or whatever markets they were involved in, and they didn't have any of these f- structures in place, or they had structures, but everyone's structure was whatever they wanted it to be, or whatever their bank required it to be, or whatever their, you know, whatever Mr. <laughs> Rockefeller required, or or uh, Mr. Carnegie, or uh, J.P. Morgan. So uh, you think about that. What that would have looked like helping all those companies get ready to. to put out a modern financial statement. Imagine what that's going to be like. And that's what it's going to be like for ESG reporting because there's no models for this or so many models that effectively there isn't one because they're all over the place. They're going to need help setting those systems up. Every company in the world is going to need this. And then they're also going to need uh, attestation around it, right? That that every year someone's going to have to go in and say, yes, this is your carbon footprint. You are are measuring your carbon footprint correctly by the right standards that everyone agrees on um, and you're going to pay us for it. just like you do for a financial statement audit. So, uh, so that's just going to think about all the different things you can report under ESG. That's, you know, every one of those is the equivalent of another financial statement audit. Now there'll be, I'm I'm exaggerating slightly for effect because there will be a lot of overlap. Some of these things will be reported through the financial statements. uh, And a lot of them will involve similar types of information, but it is a huge opportunity. Um, And it doesn't require, I know there's a lot of people in accounting, because uh, we hear from them, um, a lot of people in the country as a whole who say, who, who disagree with the premises behind requiring this reporting, and that's fine, but the reporting is going to be required, yep. uh, whether people disagree with it or not. Um, you know, there are states that are trying to ban it, for instance, or, or ban certain elements of it, or make it not a requirement, that kind of thing. And that's, that's you know, that's fine. The political aspect of it is a, a whole other question. But the fact is that this reporting is going to be required. Firms are going to have to, to uh, uh, have it attested to this is a tremendous opportunity for accountants. Assuming it goes on where it ha- in the model, in the sort of, with the momentum it currently has. Right. Um, uh, and I, I my suspicion is that it will. Um, and even if, again, even if you don't like it, people are gonna have to do it. They're gonna be turning to accountants for help with it. And it's, uh, it's gonna be a great opportunity.
1: So auditing is not dead then. Auditing will survive. <laughs>
0: Hi that's my suspicion and this this may be its savior right is that uh, I mean there's always going to be auditing the question is can you build up can you build a successful firm around it and this goes back to our question about do we need accounting firms um you know if, if accounting firms can't can't make uh the revenues they need if they can't pay the bills with just audit work uh, but they're getting split up because the PE ownership rules require them right or the or I should say the CPA firm ownership rules require the audit firm to be independent um you know they're going to need a savior they're going to need something to help them out Uh, They're going to need a different model for. uh, And if that model is we do 90 percent, you know, ESG attest work and then 10 percent financial statement work. There you go.
1: Yeah. All right. I think that was a a perfect circle there. We just we just (laughs) went right back to the beginning, wrapped it up. And so the answer is yes, Uh, we do need accounting firms.
0: (laughs) Thank God. Otherwise,
1: (laughs) what would I cover? (laughs) <laughs> um, so that we so we did this full circle now uh, and there's one last question and i didn't warn you ahead of time i probably should have warned you ahead of time but uh, uh there's one question that i ask everybody at the end of each uh, podcast is all right so we just talked about the profession for 45 minutes um, we determined whether you agree or not that you're the voice of the profession and, and God help the profession. <laughs> when you're not out being the voice of my words, not yours, you're not calling yourself this. Um, when you're not out doing this work you currently do, uh, what's your, what's your passions outside of work? What do you do for fun? What do you like doing when you're not, uh, uh out doing accounting today stuff?
0: Sure. Sure. Uh, so probably my biggest thing is I'm on a trivia team in New York. I love trivia. So I'm uh, out there on a regular basis. Sort of, I spend a lot of time reading, just because I like reading, but also a lot of time reading, <laughs> trying to learn stuff, so that I don't lose a trivia next Wednesday. Which really started as—I I should say—really, I'm passionate about drinking in the middle of the week because uh, it's all—it's <laughs> all at bars. But uh, it turned into a love of trivia. That uh, uh, you know, I'm on a team here in New York. We've—we've we've come very close. We came close. We were second in the city uh, once. Wow. But then, as I said, we drink too much in the middle of the week. But uh, so that's—that's that's a lot of fun. That's good. It's, I like enjoy doing that. And I would say that's uh, that's probably my big passion. That's uh,
1: that, that's awesome. I like that. So so what's your drink of choice then?
0: Uh, at, at at the bar, we, we go to the same bar every week, except this week, I should say, the week we're recording, we're not going to be there because they're filming an episode of Blue Bloods there, which huh. gives you a sense of what kind of bar this is. It's a, it's a beautiful old... <laughs> uh it's not an irish bar but it looks like it should be an irish bar it. yeah yep. beautiful wooden bar and old fittings and all that sort of stuff uh they're filming an episode of the tom Selleck cop show blue bloods there so we're not going this week but my choice there is narragansett uh, narragansett lager beer which is a classic american lager out of oh, rhode yeah. island for anybody who's listening from rhode island it is also and this is this is the see this is the trivia angle it's not bringing in the trivia. <laughs> nice. it is the beer if you remember the scene in jaws quint the, the fisherman Robert Shaw Quint drinks uh, Narragansett throughout the movie, and it's the beer when he crushes the beer can. Famous scene: re-crushes the beer can, and then Richard Dreyfuss crushes the Styrofoam cup. The beer he's crushing is a is a Narragansett lager beer from uh, All right. from Rhode right Island. I've heard of
1: Narragansett. I don't think I've ever had it. I've drank pretty much every beer around the country. If that's <laughs> one I've missed. So I'm going to have to seek that out.
0: It is it well. It's now getting available. You can now get it uh, available across a lot of. A big part of the country. I'm surprised at the places it shows up. It is not a craft beer. It's a, a classic American drinkable lager, like a Schaefer or a Schlitz or something like that. But it's right. it's pretty tasty and it's uh um I recommend it. It is a good hot summer day beer.
1: I assume it's an independent brewery uh at this point, but I don't know. Maybe they were bought out. Uh... Right.
0: my understanding is that they're still independent. Yep, I nice. double checked it. I have to go check to Go to Switzerland and see where the the ownership is registered. It probably belongs to Inbev or Ambev or whatever the the South right. African or Brazilian based uh, company yep. that owns every brewer in the world is now. But
1: yeah, or or Duval or uh, yeah. uh, oh. Heineken or whoever. Uh, yeah. Um. Okay. Sorry, Sorry i I'm, I'm thinking <laughs>
0: about. Duval. Oh, I lived in Brussels for for a year and a half, and so got used to a lot of. The, the delicious Belgian beers. Oh, uh,
1: that's, yeah, that's, they- there's some good beers out there. All right. So, so I can, now I can talk beer for another hour. So we're going to stop there. (laughs) Um, I just, again, want to thank you uh, for, for being part of this. Uh, I appreciate the time. I, I just want to, again, before we we finish up here, promote the fact that, uh, and this is not a commercial for this, but I just looking forward to this conference. You are going to have your conference in San Diego, May 8th through the 10th. I got those dates, right?
0: That is correct. The Firm Growth Forum.
1: And so how are you going? I assume there's still room for registrations at this time? There is still room. We still have some spaces. We hope,
0: uh, hope to get a good crowd of folks. We're not I should say, we're not looking to make it a huge conference. We're not looking to have thousands and thousands of people wandering by. Because one of the things we found is accountants learn best from each other, right? So we want to give everybody a chance to a small enough group could be a little intimate, people can talk amongst themselves, share their own stories, but also has the sort of the weight of, of expertise there that uh, they're really going to learn something useful. So yeah, we're excited about it, looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, and I, and that's the one thing I really love about the conferences like this is that I think you learn as much after the presentation, just talking with everybody else you're there with grabbing a Narragansett or some other beer and exactly. and having a good time and, and, and learning and, and just getting to meet other really fascinating people in the profession. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for joining us today on the Unique CPA. You can find all the links and show notes for today's episode, as well as more about Trimerit at theuniquecpa.com. Remember to subscribe and join us for our next episode where we'll be going beyond compliance into forging new pathways of delivering value to your clients, diversifying your revenue streams, and leading-edge management techniques and styles.